Welcome to 2024. With the 2024 election on the horizon, the wars in Gaza and Ukraine, and numerous other foreign policy and domestic news stories, it's never been more important to stay informed. The DSR Network has you covered, with experts across all of these stories, to bring you the analysis and commentary of the stories that matter. Later this month, the DSR Network will introduce the TNR Daily, featuring Greg Sargent, formerly of the Washington Post, and a close friend of the show. Don't miss a moment of our coverage. Become a member of the DSR Network today. Members receive exclusive bonus content, the opportunity to attend DSR live events, a members-only Slack community, an ad-free listening experience, and more. For the month of January, receive 50% off your first year of membership. Visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and enter code DSR2024 at checkout. That's thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and code DSR2024. Thank you for your support. Hi, this is Riley Fessler. As polls continue to forecast gloom for 2024, today's episode from the archive takes us back to the 2022 midterms, where polls were similarly grim. David, Simon Rosenberg, and Tara McGowan speak with Cecile Richards to predict a surprisingly good outcome for Democrats. Please enjoy. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio. Coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the podcast. I'm your host, David Rothkopf, coming to you from New York City, because it's Thursday, the end of the week, and we are talking about politics. I'm also joined by Tara McGowan. She's the CEO and founder of Good Information and publisher of Courier Newsroom. How are you doing today, Tara? Doing really well, David. Got the jitters, the adrenaline and the jitters. Let's see if we can help that as we go on. We'll also be joined in a minute as we are for all of these politically oriented podcasts up to the election by Simon Rosenberg, who's the president of Indiana New Policy Institute. He'll be popping on in a moment. And we have a special guest. And our special guest is Cecile Richards. Cecile is the co-founder of Supermajority and the former president of the Planned Parenthood Federation of America. And so obviously, one of the things we want to talk to Cecile about is the role that the abortion issue and women are going to play in the upcoming election. And to kick us off in that direction, Tara, first question to you. Sure. Hi, Cecile. Welcome. Hey, Tara. Yeah, good to see you. And David, good to be with you again. You too, especially um, in the uh, in the final, the very final sprint that we're in. So thanks for making time. So let's just dive into it. Um, I have been uh, watching with a lot of hope and optimism the extraordinary numbers of new registrations and early votes coming from young women in particular across the country. 
We've talked about the role of early vote a lot on this podcast and certainly Simon's Twitter feed um, that David lifts up. But I've been really, that has been um, the segment of the population and the electorate that I've just been most excited about. And obviously think that it was, it is in large part a reaction and a response to the Dobbs decision. And I'm curious if you think that it is going to be the surge that it looks like it could be and what that means for the midterms. I don't know all the things you've, sounds like you've covered a lot of the things that I've really been obsessing about too, which is, of course, immediately following the Dobbs decision, we saw just an explosion of new voter registration among women in particular. And as you say, young women, you know, the state of Pennsylvania always jumps out as a place where we saw so many young women um, rush to get registered. And as we know, in a midterm election, it's all about who turns out since millions of people don't vote in midterm elections. And so if we can, in fact, increase voter turnout, particularly among young people who are less reliable or sometimes they're first-time voters and haven't been through the process before, that can really make the difference. And as you know, I mean, here we are sitting just a few days after this election, and we are in some really, really tight, tight races. I, I, I think the um, the one thing that we needed um, going into this election was enthusiasm. And I suppose if there was, we could boil it down to one impact that the Dobbs decision had, uh, it is a stark realization that the only thing standing between you and losing all of your rights to make your own decisions about pregnancy is who's, it, who's your governor. And so I think, as, again, as we're looking at states where Michigan, Pennsylvania, we could go down the list, Wisconsin, Nevada, these are states where everything is on the line. And it's, it's I think that the degree of understanding and awareness among voters, and particularly among young voters, is very, very high. So that makes me optimistic about, about what we'll see uh, on Election Day. Simon, how are you? Hi, Simon. Hello, everybody. Hello, Cecile. Hey, Simon. Simon, we, uh, we're just uh, sort of starting out with some questions for Cecile about what she thought was going to happen uh, next Tuesday. Perhaps you have a question or a comment and a question. I think Cecile's right. I, I caught the tail end of what she was saying that there's no, you know, just today the Navigator poll came out. You know, there's this ridiculous meme about how abortion wasn't a driving issue in the election. And if you look at the Navigator poll today among Democrats, inflation and abortion are the two top issues driving the election. And, the, and so abortion dropped as an issue for Republicans, but it's always been a driving issue for Democratic voters. And it's such a tragedy in some ways that there became so much noise about this. Of course, this is a driving issue. And we saw it play out in Kansas and in the five House specials. And I think that same energy is showing up in the early vote. I mean, the early vote is incredibly encouraging for us all across the country. And I, Cecile, I know you're on the ground and dealing with this. I mean, I think we should be optimistic about what we're seeing in the early vote right now. We are above our 2020 numbers in virtually every major state that matters, including Cecile in your home state in Texas, right? And I think this is, I think we should be, I, we know already, we know the Republicans are going to have a strong turnout. We, and the evidence so far is yes, we are. And that the, that the energy that we saw play out right after Dobbs ended, in those house specials in Kansas are, are now carrying over to the general election was what we needed to make this election competitive. And I think we're ending into these final days in a very, very competitive place. Who could have imagined, right? It's kind of a miracle that we're here. 
but we've got to take advantage of it and do the best we can. I know you have really been uh, educating folks about how the polls can be so far off. And we all know that we're kind of going through this polling crisis, which is really no one knows what to believe. And I, of course, in August, that all the polling was wrong on Kansas, uh, just as one small example. I remember the night before talking to folks on the ground and everyone thought it's just, it's just going to be so close because all the polls were showing it's close. And in fact, we won that, that, that ballot initiative that would have allowed for, to, you know, the ability for the legislature to um, uh, criminalize abortion. We won that by 18 points in, a, in an election in which was a majority of Republican voters and a huge, massive turnout that was absolutely unpredicted. So again, this is a tough environment, as I think we've all been honest. And we have, you know, it's always hard for the party in power. But the Dobbs decision, I do believe, it just was the most disruptive influence in a midterm election that I can remember in, in recent history. And the other, the other thing that Tara, Tara and I were talking the other evening about young people and just what an sort of untapped resource and what an important group of voters these are. We also know that young women in, I believe in 2020, turned out 10 points higher than young men. And so I also believe that there was already a trend in this direction. I think the Dobbs decision, even though we know it is wildly unpopular with young men as well, this is not a popular decision with anyone, and particularly folks in sort of the reproductive years, but it is a real motivator for young women. No, I was just going to say, in it, we have a newsroom, the Gander in Michigan, and Michigan is also just a really interesting place on this issue in particular because they also have a ballot measure on the ballot that that got unbelievable signatures to get it on the ballot when it came out, and that also led to unbelievable re- new registrations in the state that are much higher than other states. And I just read today from the Circle, which does a lot of research on the youth vote generally, that Michigan is up the youth 18 to 24 year olds in Michigan, the registration rates of new registrants is 38 points above where it was in 2018. 38 in Michigan. It's incredible of 18 to 24 year olds. So I really do think that the polls miss a lot of young people. They miss a lot of infrequent voters in their data. And so we just, we really don't know what's going to happen. But I think Michigan in particular, abortion has never ceased to be the driving message there which is really good for the three women at the top of the ticket, hopefully. But one thing that I I was going to just sort of tack on to that part of the conversation was kind of the curiosity around this because of the numbers that you mentioned in Kansas and the ballot initiative in Michigan. What's so interesting about it is that it wasn't about a candidate, right? So do you think that that plays a real role with, let's say, older voters? So voters that aren't these 18, 24-year-olds that we're talking about necessarily where they might not, you know, be as strongly uh, motivated to turn out on the issue if it's if if they have to then bring it down to the party or candidate level, is it just easier on the ballot? Or can you speak to that a little bit? Because I'm really curious about that. Well, I I mean we're going to learn a lot, and I think Michigan is kind of almost the perfect test case where that. It, and I, I actually was out in Michigan to do an event for the folks that were doing the ballot initiative. They had. 750,000 people signed petitions to get that on the ballot. I mean, and that was right, you know, it was sort of pokey up until Dobbs. And then the Dobbs decision was just like an explosion out there. And so I do think that, uh, and obviously I think you could probably correlate that with, with the bump in registration. Look, I know from my years of Planned Parenthood, we used to have to beat back ballot initiatives at the state level 
in really conservative states. The, the two that always are burned into my memory indelibly were South Dakota and Mississippi. Now, these are states that you would say, you know, if you poll them, obviously, it, very Republican states, states that if you ask people, they would say they were pro-life because no one, of course, who doesn't want to be pro-life because no one really knows what that means. And yet in both of those states, we overwhelmingly beat uh, abortion bans on the ballot uh, that had been passed by the state legislatures. And so I do believe if this is kind of getting the heart of what you're saying, if, if I could do a national ballot referendum tomorrow in this country on abortion, we would win it going away, right? Because this people do not want government telling folks what to do about their pregnancies. They do. And that is only going to grow. I mean, that's the other thing, Tara. I think that the midterms are going to be one one point in time, but this is not going to get more popular. I think the question is now, you know, when you you look at the two major issues being inflation or motivating issues and sort of what's in the mind of voters, inflation and and the extremism of the Republican Party. Interestingly, at least the, the research I've looked at is the number one folks, the number one group concerned about inflation are women. Why? Because they're the ones dealing with, you know, trying to feed their family, you know, put their, you know, keep their kids in school, take care of, you know, basic necessities. And so I do think there are these sort of competing pressures there. I don't think it takes away the saliency at all of the issue of choice or of the right to make decisions about your, your own body, your own pregnancy. But I just do believe that women are kind of caught in a bind here. And of course, we know that women voters, maybe not younger voters as much, these new voters we're talking about, but women who have been basically bearing the brunt of now three years of COVID as caregivers, as teachers, as healthcare providers, as mothers, as, as daughters, right? They are, this has been a tough three years. And of course, that's just the, those are just the optics of this election regardless uh, of this topic. And I think just lastly to what you said, Simon, I do, I do believe a year ago, I don't think any of us would thought we would be in this place given all of the, you know, everything coming at us. And I, the fact that the, the Democrats are competitive, so competitive now in holding on to the United States Senate, maybe even adding a seat or two, uh, competitive, really tough governor's races. This is to me a sign that there's energy out there that maybe isn't being completely understood. One of the things we're trying to do here is provide people with practical guidance that they can use as they go out over the course of the next couple of days. And uh, while talking about the trends is, is, is encouraging, part of that is helping people to visualize what happens if the Democrats don't prevail, if we lose in the House, if we lose the Senate by a couple of votes. If you were giving a brief message to the country or you were giving talking points to people who are out there trying to mobilize people and say, you've really got to vote, what's the picture you paint of, of, of falling short? Well, I've never seen a worse crop of candidates than who the Republicans have put up. And let's face it, this is not the slate of candidates running are not the Republican Party. This is the Trump team. We don't have to go through the list of horribles, but, you know, Blake Masters and Herschel Walker just being two, uh, I think, prime examples. So they, their own words, are, I think, are, are, are frightening enough. But I do believe that certainly for women, and not because, again, men aren't, don't believe in abortion rights, just women tend to vote on this issue. 
we can remind people that it wasn't too long ago that Lindsey Graham announced and Mitch McConnell backed him up uh, their intention to introduce a national abortion ban. So no matter where you live, you're not safe if the Republican Party is in power. And I do think that's a really important message. And, and as my friend James Carville would say, they've also said they're going to cut Social Security and Medicare and just look in their look in their plans. And so and that is an issue that may not be on the minds of young voters, but um, women who are economically stressed, well, frankly, anyone, these are issues that are incredibly important. And I do believe the Republican Party has been has very been very transparent about about what their plans are. I also think it's late now, of course, to be able to educate voters about what this Democratic Congress and this president administration have done. But the child tax credit was just one of the most important things that I think was achieved. No one really knows that every single Republican who's running either voted against it or opposed it. So I think that we also have to really contrast what Joe Biden and what the Democrats have been working despite very little, well, little or really no partnership with the Republican Party. They have really been doing everything they can to get our economy back on track. You know, 10 million new jobs created, lowest unemployment in 50 years. We got to acknowledge where people are at because people are hurting because of inflation, but also remind them there's really only one party that has a plan uh, for what to do about it. Yeah, no question about that. In fact, there's something profoundly hypocritical about Republican stance on inflation since it's not controlled by the president. It's not something that Congress can control. It's a global phenomenon. But if you look at the drivers of inflation, whether it's big business overreach or it's the mishandling of COVID or it's Vladimir Putin, the Republicans actually are on the wrong side of all of those issues. And if you look at the efforts that Democrats have been making to help people deal with cost of living issues, every time the Democrats say, well, let's help people pay for their medicine or let's help people pay for, you know, something else or let's, uh, you know, let's stop the gas gouging, the Republicans block it. So they're, they're the pro-inflation party. They're not, they, they, it's, it's not just that they don't really have a plan. Simon, question for Cecile or question or comment? Yeah, no, Cecile. Listen, I just wanted to, from a stats standpoint, we were talking about Michigan. The the biggest, the state that has seen the hugest increase in the early vote from 2020 is Michigan. It's 22 points higher than it was, I just checked, 22 points higher than it was two years ago at this point. And no other state is more than 13 points higher. And so you're right. I mean, what you were saying about this galvanizing issue, it's very clear that this is a thing that is still, you know, seeing the biggest variance of the early vote of any of all 50 states, right, is been in Michigan. And I think we have to be, we could have a very, very strong election day in Michigan at this point from what we're seeing. And I remain very optimistic about, you know, what we're seeing in, in the early vote. I mean, I think that the, again, I think for your listeners, the single most important thing I can convey is that this energy that we saw in the five house specials and in Kansas is showing up in this election. And we just didn't know if that was going to happen. And I think obviously Dobbs is the major driver of that. So this has been a silly debate in Washington the last few weeks about whether this was a significant issue. Of course it was. And Cecile, I'm just, it's great to see you. It's just so you're, just the way you're describing everything is just so terrific. And, you know, it's a thank you for you continuing to stay in the fight after all these years. And but it really matters now. I mean, this is like the, this is, the you know, this is an incredibly important time. And 
Any other thoughts for our listeners before you go? I mean, what else are you seeing out there? What are you most excited about as as you or things that you've seen on the ground? Are you seeing the kind of energy at the grassroots level when you're going out and being in the States? I mean, what are you seeing actually on the ground? Sure. I mean, Simon, yes, I am. And in fact, I would just I just got back from Minnesota where, you know, there's just a you know, they're they're dealing with some of the same horrific Republican ads and I mean just racist and horrible. But folks on the ground are how they're I mean, Minnesota, of course, is a it's a in the in the great spirit of Paul Wellstone, it is a contact sport, right? I mean, folks are on the doors. And I think one of the things that I think is sort of underestimated, we haven't talked about state legislatures and that's for another day, but I was so kind of blown away just even in that state, but it's not only there, the number of young women, uh, of young people of color who were headed to the state legislature um, in Minnesota, and they have their own posse. (laughs) They have their own group of folks who may not be only be paying attention to national politics, to what's happening at the top of the ticket, but that energy is really important too. And so I think it's as Democrats and as progressives, all the work that groups are doing to recruit and support a new generation of leadership is is going to be really important, not just next Tuesday. It's going to be important two years from now, four years from now. But that to me was like, I just, I kind of can't get over. And these are young folks I had never even heard of but they're going to be in the state Senate and they're going to be in the, in the house. So I think that's, that's a piece of it. And what we have to make sure too is look, you and I have been through many, many elections together. Once, once we celebrated and once where we had to like lick our wounds, the most important thing to me, what, you know, we're going to win some and we're going to lose some on Tuesday. That's how it goes. The most important thing to me, especially with the young voters that Tara and I have been talking about. And I know that she's really been keenly interested in we got to make sure they have a home, that they are not left out there, because a lot of these folks are going to get their heart broken for the first time. And we've got to say, look, this is this is long haul. The reason the Republicans, the reason why corporations and dark money is fighting back on us, because we're fighting for like the future. We're fighting for things that are going to really fundamentally change issues of equity, of fairness in this country. And if, the, if it didn't matter, they wouldn't be they wouldn't be after us and after our candidates. So I just think it's important that we don't all go back home, that we actually create space and create support and organizations that can keep young voters involved. And just Cecile, to piggyback on that, because we were talking about this the other night, I think such an important thing is that even if the worst case scenario happens, which it will in certain races in certain places, it cannot be a lesson for Democrats that abortion is not an issue to run on or to include in our elections. Like that would be the worst case scenario. And I really do believe the media has gotten this wrong by taking the bait from the right and making the conversation entirely about inflation. It's not that it doesn't matter. It is not as visceral for younger women. And when I'm saying younger, I'm talking about under 40. And this is this is the supermajority and the growing supermajority is, is women in this country. And it's increasingly younger women who are getting politically engaged for the first time because of this and could very well turn into lifelong regular voters. And this is the issue that galvanized them. And so I just, that is something that I I lose sleep over. And we need to make sure regardless of the mixed bag of the results that that doesn't become an outcome. I think that's right. And just to tag on one more piece um, before before I leave you all, I, I think that's that's right. And in fact, 
the reason that you're seeing so many campaigns run against the Republicans on this issue is because it is so damaging to the Republican Party. It is, I mean, I just was looking back at the NR, I think it was the NRSC PowerPoint from earlier uh, in the spring where they're pleading with their candidates, just do not talk about abortion at all. Like do everything you can to change the topic. We know that this is, and they know it's unpopular, even with Republican voters and certainly with with independent voters. So that's right. We can't, we can't let this become that narrative. And the other thing is, honestly, we can't have this a narrative being to blame women. Women are the way we're going to win. <laughs> the races that we do win, it's going to be because women turn out and the gender gap, as we saw in Kansas, as we saw in some of these special elections, the gender gap is big enough to help carry us over the top. And I feel like I have been through too many elections where women are blamed for the fact that the Democrats didn't win everything. And that's just, that's just a, a, like a, such an unproductive, unproductive chain, you know, sort of uh, chain reaction, particularly because if we don't reach all the women that we needed to this time, we got to do our own work to make sure we're in conversation with them. You know, this is not because they're bad, bad folks. They may not, it may just be that we aren't actually talking to them and listening to them and understanding what, what's going on in their lives, which is the whole idea of supermajority. So I'm so grateful for all of you, all of you, right? I mean, here we are, we're going to do this. Uh, we're going to do the best we can. And then the next day we're going to get up and we're going to do it all over again. And it's just a real honor to be in this work with you. Likewise, Cecile, thank you so much for joining us. Absolutely. And, um, we will circle back afterwards and figure out what the next phase of this battle is. So this is normally the place in our podcast where we say goodbye to the folks who are listening in the general public or members and say, hey, become a member. And, you know, it's November and, you know, getting to be a holiday season and becoming a member is so much better now, because if you sign up to become a member now, you get a copy of my book, American Resistance, signed by me. Now, that's incredibly exciting and a free book. I mean, it practically just pays for itself. So if, uh, if, if that's appealing to you or you're having trouble sleeping, maybe the book will help with that. Try it for whatever reason, but become a member. And for those of you who are members, stand by. We'll continue this conversation in one moment. Okay, so I have a question for both of you guys. You were talking a moment ago about, you know, the Republicans wanting to change the subject. They got to change the subject. The media said, well, the subject has been changed. It, it became inflation. And even though the president didn't cause the inflation, even though it's a global problem, even though we're doing better than others, even though key indicators are coming down, even though Democrats are helping it and Republicans aren't, even though it's going to end sometime soon and taking away rights is an irreversible kind of damage. How'd that happen? How did it happen that it, the subject was changed, Tara? And then well, Simon? David, this is what always happens. <laughs> Anytime the narrative is not convenient for Republicans, um, they have the ability because of their media infrastructure, because of the, the incredible online and offline reach and influence that they and their their different media on radio, television, cable, increasingly online have, they can change the conversation and the mainstream media takes the bait almost every single time. 
And that's what we saw happen when it was all about abortion, because that's what people were outraged about across this country. We had those incredible results out of Kansas. What did we see? We saw the stunt from Ron DeSantis to change the conversation to immigration, which is often what they keep in their back pocket. It didn't work so well. It kind of had a backlash effect on them. They went back to the economy. The media took the bait. And I think what a really important point that I want to make is that we've talked about how the polls are wrong. I could talk about that forever. The media also uh, is in an echo chamber of its own. And they also are only, they're reaching a decreasing size of this population. And yet they do still have a big effect on salience of issues. And the the piece that continues to give me hope, and it's not just about young people, it's about people who don't pay attention the way that a lot of people may be listening to this podcast or on Twitter with us, et cetera, do. They're not as impacted as the mainstream media. I really do think that we are going to see a chasm between that, as we've seen in the past, between the overwhelming kind of orientation around a certain narrative, like inflation is what all people want based on polls that are often broken or or neglecting huge swaths of the population. And they're not really understanding that the majority of the population has changed their consumption habits. They're not paying attention to them. They're not as influenced by them. And that's that's where I am. And I could be proven wrong on Tuesday for sure. And the days following, because there will be results for days following. But I really have a very strong belief and instinct that the people that are going to turn out who don't regularly vote, they're not counted in the polls and they're not going to be voting predominantly on inflation. And I think that the media changed the story. That is going to have an impact around among the people that pay attention to it. But my hope and belief is that it won't actually have a downstream effect on a lot of the people who are going to decide these outcomes because they are new and infrequent voters. You buy that, Simon? I agree with everything that Tara says, first of all. And and I think that, you know, that a lot of what she's saying is correct. I, I wanna I do wanna drill down on this for a second because I have been in the war, right? I, my Twitter feed has become kind of a major part of the the closing, you know, communications effort on the Democratic side. I'm getting two to three million view, two to five million views every. I mean, uh, views every day. I'm doing four to five hours of press every single day, and every interview that I've done in the fall, I feel like I'm starting in a ditch where the reporter is coming with all these Republican talking points. They've already sort of locked in and created a framework in which then I have to fit. And if I don't fit, they don't use my stuff. This is the worst that I've ever personally experienced in 30 years of doing this. I think that we had, I think this problem that Tara described has actually been far worse in the last six months than I've ever personally experienced, where the media sort of just aligned with the Republican Party or got played by the Republican Party, entertained spin on things like fentanyl, right? which was not a thing that they just invented, right, out of nowhere. And then the media chases it, and then we have to debunk it, and it just takes up you know, noise. And I'll give you an example of this, right? This is the thing. I, I was on MSNBC this week about this. Republicans did something this cycle they've never done before, and they flooded the zone in seven states with large numbers of junky, very pro-Republican polls to gain the polling averages. And it's no question this has happened. This is not, you know, it's, it's just like sky's blue kind of thing. This has clearly happened. And it's had a massive impact because what they did when inflation began is they also ran a parallel campaign to declare the red wave had returned because of inflation. And that had not won. They had not won that battle up until a couple of days ago. It had, you know, because last week we actually had a really good week of polling in the, in the Democrats and the Senate races nationally and everything else. But then in the last couple of days, they got two good national polls 
And because of their junky polls, they moved all the Senate polling averages three or four points and then said, see, everything is moving towards us. And what I did on, on MSNBC the other night is I called out people like Steve Kornacki and you know the, the experts who study this stuff every day. They should have called attention to the game the Republicans are playing. And instead, they've gone along with it. And now you've got major networks, CNN, NBC, just saying, look, the polling averages are moving when they know the polling averages are corrupted. And that's really, to me, been kind of just a shocking thing that's happened over the last couple of weeks there, which is, you know, these guys are getting played. They know they're getting played, but they don't know what to do about it. And that they're spreading Republican talking points and memes and propaganda now on a regular basis. And I just want to tell our listeners, there is no red wave. A red wave may come, but it hasn't come yet. And in fact, the wave that we're seeing is a Democratic wave, and we should be really optimistic about what's going to happen in the election. I've tried really hard in the last few days to beat back this red wave thing, and I've failed. I mean, I'm just going to be clear. I'm, I'm not successful in it. I've had a couple minor victories. But this issue of the ability of the right-wing noise machine to bully and push around the mainstream media is a huge problem that we are going to, you know, this is why Tara built her company, right? is to really try to start creating innovative solutions in pushing back against a deeply asymmetrical you know, ability to be loud. And, and I have grown concerned. I will just tell you my little journey, and I've gone on too long here, but my little journey in the last few weeks of being sort of on the front edge of the spear, I'm coming out of this really worried about what I have seen in terms of just the ability of the media to get bullied and pushed around by a bunch of people who, by the way, their central organizing principle is lying about elections. And they've been lying about this election for months. And, and why the media hasn't had more objectivity on this, it's just been, it's been really disappointing to me. I have, I have a hypothesis there, Simon, because I don't think they're getting bullied around. The media that is not the right-wing media, right, that caters to a lot of liberal elites, it's true. They need to create emotional response and hysteria to drive clicks and revenue. That is their business model. A red wave is a narrative that drives increased engagement, especially among elite liberals. It is a it is a marketing strategy. It is why the media always talks about the horse race. Uh, one of my colleagues and was the second. You were the first person, Simon. One of my colleagues also got hit with a sponsored post by Axios that was the red tsunami is coming. The article they put money behind it to target people on Twitter and social media to drive this narrative because it drives an emotional response and clicks and engagement. So there is an incentive here underneath the surface that you have to keep in mind. It is in their best interest to make people freaked out around the idea of a red wave to be able to get more engagement. And it's not founded on any evidence, which is what you are always refuting and talking right. about. But it's important to think about those incentives because they do it we know from from evidence that the Republican ecosystem is highly networked, right? You know, they're they've been told that they have to fight the mainstream media. So take stuff you get from Fox and send it to all of your friends. And we know from data that when you drop a viral video to the Democratic world, you know, it, it's like a a little rock in a in a pond. You drop a viral video to the Republican world, it's like a massive rock in a pond, right? The cascading stuff that goes out. And what's happening now, and I think Tara and I have been talking about this, is that mainstream media now is at a point when they're sitting there and thinking about, okay, am I going to title this the election's competitive or that republic a title that's good for Republicans? The title that's good for Republicans gets more clicks. 
And, and so now you've got entire mainstream digital media basically having financial interests in promoting, you know, Republican-leaning, you know, headlines in their media. I think this has actually become, I actually think this is the other, you know, there's a piece of the explanation of what you were saying, Tara, and this has become very pernicious. You've seen it in the New York Times. The New York Times' headlines in the last few weeks, I had, an, I had a back and forth with one of the top political reporters in the New York Times who when I sent him the headline of his story, he said, no, that's not the headline of my story. That's not the story we wrote. And then I had to take, I sent him a screenshot of the New York Times. He's like, that's not our headline. We, that's not our story. I'm like, that's your story. And so the Times took a story that was neutral and turned it into a pro-Republican headline and they made money off of it. And, and so this cycle that Tara's describing, I think has become highly elevated and there has been an escalation of it. And man, it means that we got a lot of work to do. I mean, this this is a big, big thing to tackle in the in the coming years. But it also means that we just have to, as a party, start really having these kinds of conversations about the media environment that we're in, the new world that we're living in. What's going to happen if we don't really have Twitter anymore? I mean, these are big, big stuff that we've got to start getting intentional about, putting large amounts of money behind. And starting to win the information war, not just becoming victims of it, which is really what's happened this year. I want to turn to each of you to stop your whining. You know, yeah, okay. Well, <laughs> Thank you, David. Yeah. Um, you know, no, I, you know, I'm with you, but there's nothing we can do about this between now and Tuesday. What do we do between now and Tuesday? So the actionable thing to do about this, I talk about this all the time when I just try to educate people on social media. If you are feeling badly after being on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram, it is because people want you to feel that way. There are a lot of people in our party right now, and I'm sure a lot of listeners that are really freaked out and feel very pessimistic and badly about the midterms. And I I want them to hear it from us. And they're hearing it from you. And they're hearing it from Simon. They're hearing it from me. There is a lot of hope because we are not getting the full story from the media. We really aren't. And that's where I see a big silver lining because I really, really do believe that they are getting this wrong. And so people should one, take a breath and know that when they're feeling badly, it is because they are meant to feel badly. And it is not because it's based on evidence. And the second thing I would say is that there's a lot you can do in five days. Because just to the point about how the media changed the conversation to inflation, even though that's not where a lot of women in this country, I believe, are, is reminding them because the media won't. Because every day until the polls close on Tuesday is an opportunity to remind people about what's at stake, especially when it comes to reproductive freedom and rights in this country, because they will pass a federal abortion ban if they get control of the Senate and the House, Republicans. And so getting every single person to be reminded of that and out to the polls between now and when they close on Tuesday, I think can still make a massive difference. It's not over until it's over. And so, David, I'll add, I'll add and because Tara and I are always 100% in sync on these things, is that go to my Twitter feed at SimonWDC because I am putting out twice, two, two to three times a day, sort of a counter narrative from this, some counter programming, sort of the negativity and the red wave stuff. And I actually don't believe a red wave has come. I actually really believe that. I mean, I'm looking at the data. I'm showing you data. And so, you know, come to my feed and 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 let me give you good news to close out this election and and share this with your friends. But I think Tara's right. I mean, whatever you can do, whether it's texting, door knocking, phone calls, 
you know, whether it's spreading positive information through your social networks, which has to become a much more conscious part of what it means to be a Democrat. It's a very conscious part of what it means to be a Republican, right? Whether it's giving a little bit of money to any organization or candidate that you feel needs a little bit of help, just do more of it, right? I mean, that's the most important thing is that you can't go to bed on election night or wake up the next day and say, you know, on Saturday, I ended up going to the farmer's market for too long and I, I, I should have spent an hour making calls. Just do more. We have a shot here. This is an incredibly close election. It's an incredible achievement by our family that we're even this close. We're running really good campaigns. We've got great candidates, right? We're in this thing. The early vote is unbelievably encouraging all across the country. We are way above our 2020 numbers and we're way above 2018 in turnout. This is going to be a higher turnout election than the largest turnout election in 100 years, right? Does so common be, sense yeah, guide yeah. us on this thing? Because we can't be everywhere at once. Focus on Ohio and Pennsylvania, North Carolina. Yeah, uh, those are the states. Uh, 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 Arizona. Arizona. Arizona, Arizona. Arizona, Wisconsin. And Nevada. And Nevada. Yeah. I mean, those are the states, right? And, and so give some And I'll take care of Iowa. I'm in Iowa right now. I'm going to go talk to voters tomorrow. By the way, you know that the second state with the highest increase in early vote for Democrats in the country after Michigan is Iowa. Sure it's is. It's incredible what's happening there. It not sure a coincidence. is. That's because she's there. Yeah. <laughs> it's not. Put two, but, and, put two and two together, Simon. But talking to voters always gives me hope. I am going to go. I'm going to be canvassing tomorrow. I do it every year. I love it. And so if you can talk to voters via text, via phone, reach out into those states. Truly. By the, by the way, just as a final thing in our own small way, taking a page out of uh, Simon's book of trying to be kind of the the upper that everybody should take each morning. I have a column with Bernard Schwartz tomorrow in which we talk about the economic argument and I hope put it to bed. The, the, the reality is there is no way to look at the economic story and come to the conclusion that Republicans are the answer. Whether you look at history, and of the last uh, 11 recessions have started under Republicans, whether you look at other results of Republican administrations and things like deficits or uh, job creation, whether you look at the results of Democrats generically doing better on all those things, you look at the Biden administration, whether you look at the issue of inflation, on every single point, the Republicans cause the problem, make the problem worse, and object to anything to help the problem. And the Democrats produce growth and provide solutions. And it's not even close. And so anybody who had a serious conversation about the economics would say, this choice is as clear as the choice on abortion, the choice on guns, the choice on gay marriage, the choice on democracy. There's one party for helping. There's one party for making things worse. And so we're trying to send that message clearly. And I hope you know folks who hear it will look for it and they will share it. But for now, guys, the next time I see you, this election will have happened or be happening. I think we're talking Wednesday, so I think the election will have just happened. Um, we'll know uh, some things. We we'll, might not we'll know, know all things. We'll know something. Yeah, we're going to have a lot to celebrate, David. I hope that's true. I look forward to that. Everybody join us again for the celebration next week. And Simon will offer up 
the loudest I told you so in a history of American politics. <laughs> or I'm going to get my ass kicked in Washington, but we'll see. We'll, see what yeah, well, we'll come up with something. We'll say you've got to focus on 2024. In any event, thank you, Tara. Thank you, Simon. Thanks to Cecile for joining us. Thanks to everybody for tuning in. We'll be back with more of this next week, maybe even twice if it takes that. And see you then. Until then, stay well. Bye-bye.